This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. Our taping is made possible with the support of Raider, a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. The generosity of Oxner Lafayette General also makes this podcast possible. As Acadiana's largest regional health system, including two teaching hospitals and the region's only level two trauma center with more than 5,500 employees, Oxner Lafayette General strives to put patients first and make caring their top priority. In continuous efforts to reach more patients, Oxner Lafayette General provides services throughout Acadiana and facilitates telemedicine throughout the state, making healthcare more accessible for everyone. For more information, visit oxnerlg.org. Support for this podcast also comes from HomeBank, committed to the needs of the communities they have served for 114 years. This softball season, Home Bank will make a donation to an area nonprofit for every home run made by the Lady Cajuns. Visit Home Bank online at home24bank.com. Home Bank, member FDIC. Today, we welcome oil entrepreneurs, Charlie Goodson and Mark Miller, to discuss the current state of the energy industry in Louisiana, as well as how the war in Ukraine has affected prices of fuel. Both are active operators in the industry and serve on the board of Louisiana Oil and Gas Association. Charlie Goodson is chair of the board, president, and CEO of PetroQuest Energy, an independent energy company engaged in the exploration, acquisition, and production of oil and natural gas reserves in Texas and Louisiana. Mark Miller, president of Merlin Oil and Gas, has 40 years of experience in the field of petroleum land management. He serves on the National Petroleum Council in Washington, D.C., Mark served as president of the Independent Petroleum Association of America and the Lafayette Association of Petroleum Landmen. I want to welcome you both, Mark and Charlie. This topic is just so near and dear to my heart, having been an oil and gas attorney living in Lafayette, Louisiana, that has historically been the hub city, and also distressed at what I'm seeing in the current energy industry. It's, it's upside down. And some of this could have been avoided. So I thought it'd be a great opportunity to welcome you both to my home and let you talk about your experience and how we got here and some things that are being done to look forward to the future. So um, why don't we start with Charlie? We'll go alphabetically. And I know I didn't get in all that you've done. You've been so active and I just learned you're on the Federal Reserve Board. There's so much I didn't mention about you, if you can fill us in. Uh, well, my background is I uh, grew up in an oil and gas family in North Louisiana and then um, uh, graduated from Louisiana Tech and then postgraduate work at OU and realized I didn't know anybody in Oklahoma. So I uh, came back to New Orleans with Mobile Oil Company uh, and then uh, in 1980 moved to Natchez, Mississippi with Cal and Petroleum Company and was there five years. And then in 1986 started basically PetroQuest Energy in Lafayette been here since that time and our background was we were private for 13 years uh, drilling wells in South Louisiana and then offshore uh, and then in 1998 we did a reverse merger to merge with another company changed the name to PetroQuest at that time from American Explore and uh, basically started out with a, a company that had a valuation of probably under 50 million dollars and grew that to about 1.8 billion in, in eight years uh, actually 10 years and then you know we went through this same cycle and in 2000 the first downturn was really the financial collapse in 2008 mm-hmm. when stocks just you know just uh, just collapsed and then that was really when the horizontal drilling and fracking really took off uh, we'd seen it for the previous you know 10 or 12 years but, but that was really kind of the beginning of the end for South Louisiana because one, it's very, very developed in, in the shelf of the Gulf of Mexico, but it doesn't have a resource play as such. And today we've gone from, 
you know, two or three percent of the drilling rigs running on these resource plays or fracking and, and horizontal drilling to now 97% are doing that. And, uh, and what it has done is it's really helped North Louisiana and East Texas from the Haynesville Shale, which people do recognize. Right. So, uh, you, know, uh, you know, before we turn it over to Mark, you know, I think what people don't understand is how we got here. And, you know, if you look back at history, I think history is a really good way to look at the oil and gas industry. The Industrial Revolution started in the mid-1800s with coal. And coal was number one. And then, then, it, then in 1865, when oil was found in commercial quantities, oil came in. And so you had coal and oil. And then in the, the, you know, as we started drilling deeper and deeper and had pipelines, natural gas was the next you know, evolutionary hydrocarbon to be used. And, and unfortunately, uh, the next was going to be uh, nuclear and hydro and all these others. And nuclear, which would have been the bridge fuel from hydrocarbons, uh, was kneecapped by Three Mile Island, uh, Chernobyl, and Fukushima, three perfectly timed things, which really kind of took two or three rungs out of the ladder. Mm -hmm. And so here we are trying to shift from hydrocarbons over the next, you know, 50 to 100 years to, you know, renewables and things like that. And, you know, we're, we're caught in a, a political you know, badminton game back and forth between Democrats and Republicans uh, that, that really are not doing anything long-term, they're doing things very short-term. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're seeing today is you've gone from drill, drill, drill to no drill at all. And, and what that does is uh, it's a short-term uh, uh, fix for a political party that's a long-term pain for the consumer. Right. So I think with that, turn it over to Mark to let him kind of bring some of the things out. Yeah, I'd like to start by quoting Paul Hilliard, our dear friend. Oh, yeah. He says, you know, basically we're victims of our own success. We've been so good at what we do in this business that politically we're being punished for it because uh, in Washington they look at every oil and gas man and woman as, you know, these people have immense wealth mm -hmm. and resources. Deep, deep and that that's not the case. We know that. We live here in this community. But beyond that... We had the ability and were in the past three years to be in energy independent. I mean, we were exporting mm -hmm. our oil for the first time in many, many years, and we were strong in that regard. And I think that shielded us from a lot of what's happening right now. People were a little more afraid of America, and therefore they wouldn't do certain things as we've seen unravel here recently. So. We are victims of our own success. We're extremely good. And as Charlie pointed out, the shale revolution was that. It, it was a way to get more oil and gas from the same oil zone and much more effectively. Uh, so, And in the meantime, since we don't have a lot of shale in South Louisiana, unfortunately, that's left us in the rearview mirror. But we have some creative people here. We still have tremendous oil and gas reserves. We have great rocks, as the geologists like to say. So... Charlie and I both know there's a lot of reserves left, but finding people who are willing to put up the capital and ride through the regulations that have been put upon us is very difficult. You know, Greg Gautreau uses that term, wildcatter mentality. And we were all young enough, you know, at the time we were, I guess, teenagers in the 70s when there was gas shortages. Yeah. And we had to wait in line for God knows how long to get a couple of gallons of gas just to be able to drive around and get to school. And then I was amazed, Charlie, when you said you moved here in 86. I had moved here in 83 and had the opportunity to do oil and gas work. And I mean, 86 was a very hard time for the industry. And you guys have been surviving these cycles. But from the consumer end, it seems like consumers have such a short memory about, you know, when gas is cheap, they'll buy their big pickup trucks. And then when it goes up, as it is now, everybody wants to buy something cheaper or run something. They look at electric or yeah. our little cheaper imports that we used to do that were light and would get better gas mileage. But we have short memories, but in your industry, it's the long-term haul that's making this happen. So I, I love the background. Mark, tell us real quickly, though, your background, because you, you've been 
through this long haul too of over 40 1980, years. 1980, basically yeah, the same, same time, time as Charlie. I yeah. worked offshore for a gentleman named John Chance, oh, uh, yeah. whom we all know, and then morphed into the land business and began getting involved in putting together seismic shoots and drilling wells. So while Charlie's been on the public side, I've been more on the private side, very small. But we both face the same challenges when, when you're trying to find money to drill in this environment, especially in this part of the world, it's very difficult. We've had a litany of legal issues with plaintiff's lawyers, as we all know, but it's also just been a difficult environment in the last few years for oil and gas. And now with the price going up, I'm getting calls from all over the country going, wow, you must be doing really well. And, and they don't understand, as you Money's mentioned Money's not earlier, coming in the mail? <laughs> it's not coming. Well, it, it's coming, but not the way you would think. And Hurricane Ida put most of our production offline since October. It just came back online in January, just getting revenue back on. So those things are, the, the general public doesn't think about that. And uh, we love our industry, and these high prices are not necessarily good for us in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. such as our friends and, and you know, my children that, and my teenage son that drives to school. You know, going to pay $5 for gas isn't the best right. thing for him. Charlie, I had Mark on at the height of the pandemic, and it was when the price of a barrel of oil was negative, like yes. it was less when, than zero. Right. right. <laughs> And I didn't realize you were off production. How, how has your company been faring with that, with the pandemic crisis yeah. and then Well, we went hurricanes. through a, a, basically a kind of a transition of our company and a restructuring of our debt and equity and things like that. And so really during the pandemic, we had really kind of had shut down activity uh, because of the collapsing natural gas prices. And so really we're trying to, I guess you'd say hoard cash to, to build the company back up. And um, so, but but with gas at $1.25 to $1, natural gas at $1.25 to $1.75, which we were getting in East Texas, it was, uh, you were not you were not even covering your operating cost. Mm -hmm. So you were losing, every time you produced a molecule of natural gas or, you know, or oil, you were losing money. And, uh, you know, we did have some hedges in place, but for the most part, you were, you just realized that it can't stay here forever. And fortunately, it, it, you know, it shifted back up and now we're seeing the results of, you know, of a lack of drilling, a lack of production. You're seeing the prices, you know, uh, but when we make an investment, we have to look at a, you know, three to five year timeline. And so... Even from it, today, you couldn't jump and... Makes you know, I mean, you're certainly, to, but what they also don't understand is there's price inflation for services. So, you know, while the price of oil and gas is going up, so so are the, the service costs to drill for and produce. So it's a, you know, those prices are uh, 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 many times in tandem with each other that that your your fiscal costs are going up along with your revenues. Do you have workers? You know, we've heard about people can't get enough staff. And I was curious about that. Has that affected the oil and gas industry to have available workers? It, it definitely has. And, and a lot Especially of people, if you're on hold. I mean, what, what do you tell your employees? A lot of people retired these past few years or they were forced to get out of the business. So, um, but we're hiring again and uh, getting resumes in. And these are people that I generally don't know in the business. Whereas for many years, I knew most of the players. But many of them have decided to call it quits, and so that makes it difficult, too, to find good people to get back in and do the work mm -hmm. again. How did you handle that with your workers? I mean, where did they go? Well, you know, basically, we, uh, we, our staff has been pretty stable for the last couple of years, and, uh, um, but you're, you're, what you, the trouble is is when there's a downturn, uh, uh, some of the staff like geologists and, and engineers, they're not very portable. Uh, they pretty much are, are fixed for the oil and gas industry and they may great and go to another part of the country. But among the other people, the clerical people or the, mm -hmm. the accountants and all can transition to other industries. And so in, in, in Lafayette, a lot of our people transition into the medical field or the legal field or, you know, some of the other things and, and they won't come back. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, which is good for them. I mean, we like to see the people stay in this area. Um, but uh, the one thing that has helped us is computerization. We do so much more with a computer that we couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so, but, you know, I think loyalty is very, you know, something we try to, even during some downtimes, you know, we kept paying people that, that, you know, even though we were increasing our, our debt, you know, we kept people on as much as we could. So let's talk about where we are with, I guess, I hate to be too political, but the Biden administration's policies and how they've affected your industry. Mark was so kind to include me one day. You had a luncheon at Cafe Vermillionville, and there were several other people affected by the industry and some Trump representatives. She's and a, it was full speed ahead for the oil and gas industry at she, that point. She was head of the uh, EPA Region 6 yeah. and came down. And and what's important about that was under Trump, we at least had a, a pretty good roadmap. Under Biden, we've been thwarted several times. And people can say what they want, but the Keystone Pipeline has really hurt this country for the next few years in rising prices. And as Charlie intimated earlier, it's basically a political move. It really wasn't a smart economic move. Can and you explain what you mean by the Keystone Pipeline? Where is it? And well, the Keystone it, Pipeline was, was slated, to slated to be built. It had permits. It was under construction, and then it was stopped immediately. From uh, Canada, Canada, Canada yes. to the U.S. To the yeah. U.S. And so, I mean, that, that has a, a resonating effect on what's going on right now in terms of price mm -hmm. hikes. It's not just that. It's shutting down uh, new permitting in the Gulf of Mexico and drilling and permitting on federal lands that have been suspended. And as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, yes, there are a lot of permits, and, and oil companies haven't acted on thousands of them, but it takes a while, as Charlie said. Mm -hmm. Onshore, it's three to five years. Offshore, it's five to 10 to 15 in deep water. So these projects are capital intensive. They take a tremendous amount of time. And uh, I, I did want to mention, I do sit on the National Petroleum Council. So we were looking at long-term solutions to help offset any idea that we're not paying attention to carbon footprint. Deep studies on carbon sequestration, and uh, these companies are spending a lot of money, these major companies, Exxon, Chevron, et cetera, BP. We're, we're not, we want to embrace the situation that's going on on the planet. We, being forced to do so in an unfettered uh, way doesn't help us in an organized way. But we're willing to do it, and I think we've made great strides. And, and I, I don't have a Tesla, but I'm certainly not opposed to one. No, you know, I, I think that lack of understanding is probably the biggest problem that we have in this industry and in many industries. Because when I listen to someone, a pundit on the TV talking about some other industry, I'm, well, I didn't know anything about right, that. Right. And, and, but when I hear someone talk about oil and gas or, or petroleum, and it really doesn't matter whether they're on the left or right. Most people are, are pretty ignorant, mm -hmm. and they're they're basically sound bites. But you know, people ask about investments, and I gave a talk to a, a college group one time, and I said, you know, you ask why we aren't investing or why we are investing. Think of it when you went to school, college, and you're going to be there four years. You said, this is what my curriculum is going to be, and this is what I'm going to graduate in. Well, what if you pick something that that was great? when you were a freshman, it was horrible when you were a senior. Well, that's kind of where we are. You know, we make a, make a decision when prices are, you know, high to drill, and by the time we get out of college, they're low. And, and we're going in those cycles, so you've got to basically, you've got to risk adjust, you've got to average, and, and so even though oil prices are, you know, $110 a barrel a day, or, or even higher, and natural gas is 560, it can, you know, you look two years ago, it was $20 a barrel and it was, you know, $1.75 for natural gas. And so we can't sit there and, and turn it on like a light switch. We've got a plan just like anybody plans for their future. And, you know, um, the things that are happening right now, we are uh, in this country producing about 100 million, 100 BCF a day in natural gas, which is a, a number that is pretty significant and that looked like that was going to kind of be peak production but with what's going on now in europe totally changes that equation uh where if 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 we stop using russian lng and we start building additional lng plants here you could maybe go to 120 bcf a day i know these are numbers people don't really understand but the difference is is today 
in Washington, they are holding back and won't license those new plants. So Biden is in Europe with NATO talking and in Poland talking about use our natural gas and his administrators in Washington won't even agree to, to permit these plants. So it's uh, definitely talking, you know, out of both sides of their mouth. And, uh, you know, his his entire the, the, the current president's uh, current uh, agenda has totally changed in the last 30 days with Ukraine. If you go back and look, listen to what he said 30 days ago. Totally different, and it, and if if Putin, you know, if peace breaks out in Ukraine, he'll be back to the same. So, you know, I feel sorry for those people over there and harbor what's going on. But the, the political winds can change so fast in this industry, and we need four years to make a decision, and they can change in thirty days. So, yes, the price is up now, but uh, it's most importantly is the fact that what we did over the last twenty to thirty years of building independence in America, we are all benefiting from that today. You don't see gas lines anywhere. You might see the price up, but we are very insulated from uh, collapse, except for maybe cyber attacks and things like that, which could shut everything down. Yeah, the only time we had a problem was after, I guess, the last hurricane. Time has flown with the pandemic. I lose track of the right. months and years. but. It seems like there was a time recently where you couldn't find gas, but people weren't camped, at least in this area. Mm -hmm. But it's typically because of this either natural disaster or a crisis, but not like we had in the 70s. Well, you basically, when you look at Louisiana, the, the, the refineries are primarily, you know, south of New Orleans or around New Orleans, north mm -hmm. and south, you know, up along the Mississippi Corridor and in Lake Charles. If you look back and, you know, they had two hurricanes in Lake That's Charles, was, you had one yeah. in the, so those two areas were impacted. And, and it's really surprising that that those refiners are able to get back up mm, so as quickly. fast as so quick quick right. and uh, then you had the freeze which you know that that, that also so impacted a lot of a lot mm -hmm. of things so you know we are way more resilient than people realize yeah it's almost been like an apocalypse when you think yeah. about the crazy things you know yeah. the, the unfortunate things that have happened in the world I want to get more into this with y'all and talk about clean energy resources and how clean Louisiana's energy industry operates. And I thought it'd be interesting to pause and reflect back before we do that on an interview that I did with Scott Angel, who I know is a friend of both of you, and he spoke of the importance of balancing the three E's, environment, energy, and the economy, which is what we're talking about. Scott Angel served under the Trump administration as director of the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement. And as you know, he also served as secretary of the Louisiana Department of Natural Resources and as our lieutenant governor. This moment is made possible by FACET, who has offered career transition services and executive coaching for 40 years. Their experienced career strategists provide coaching for C-suite and key employees on critical improvement areas, in addition to new leader assimilation for all levels. Visit facetgroup.com for more information. We people, your success. I call these things the three E's, energy, environment, and economy. Heretofore, energy has kind of been thought of as a red state issue. Mm -hmm. Environment has been thought of as a blue state issue. And the third E that we kind of introduced into this conversation is a purple issue. And that is the economy that affects everybody, right? I happen to believe that our children will have energy from a variety of different sources that perhaps we didn't have. And I think that's good. I think it's okay. Uh, I, I do subscribe to the, to the theory that we need to take care of our planet, right? Uh, I think that those things are not incompatible with one another. Mm -hmm. And so that's why uh, I've introduced, uh, I, I think, a new umbrella message. And that umbrella message is the balance of the three E's. The word balance is perhaps one of the most positive words in the dictionary. You've never used the word balance in a negative way. You balance your checkbook, you work right. life balance. The reason that the economy is so important in this conversation, Jan, is to recognize that from 1973 to 2019, we've had six recessions in this country. And each one of those recessions were preceded by a spike in energy prices. As goes America's access 
to affordable, not cheap, but affordable energy, mm-hmm. so goes America's economic performance. I've done research. We sell more cars in America when we have flat energy prices. We build more homes in America when we have f- flat energy prices. Our economy performs better when we have flat energy prices. Welcome back to Discover Lafayette. We're with Mark Miller and Charlie Goodson. And I'm fascinated with this topic. Even if we didn't have the current problems, I, I would have loved to have had you two just talking about the industry because of your experience. And I, I just had some questions from things I've seen in the news, and you can bring it home for us if you would. But um, I wanted to ask, you know, the money that you have to raise to, to make a new... Uh, venture happen. Where does this money come from and is it available? Like today, is it available? Are they, they're talking the same as you both do that you have to look far ahead. So is it worth investing the millions that it's going to take to make something happen? I don't know who wants to jump in, but if you can talk about that. Well, um, Charlie, that our, my history was the, uh, prior to 1985, there was a huge amount of money invested in the oil and gas industry uh, that was tax related. Uh, we had high taxes and you could write off the investment. And uh, so then when Reagan got in, he basically lowered the tax rate and that tried that, that capital up. And also you had, a, you had a, a collapse in commodity prices. Well, when we started the company in 1986 or 85, 86, uh, that the typical money raising went away from going to Houston and selling projects to the industry. So after about a year of just couldn't do anything, uh, our company, basically myself, primarily uh, started out with you know just individuals who you know buying one and two percents of of deals in South Louisiana. And, I call it the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. You know, got together, <laughs> and fortunately, we were successful. And that's how we ran our company from 1986 until 1998. Uh, in the mid-90s, people still remember Stone, Florasian mm-hmm. Rocks, uh, the various public companies that were, that were operating out of here. And that's when the equity markets opened up. That's when stocks were, you know, were just like the tech stocks are today. You know, everybody has to have and buy them didn't care what the profit and loss of the companies were. They just wanted a growth stock. And so we went public in 1998. And, you know, basically the stock went from a dollar to $30 a share in eight years. And that was basically you could use debt and equity being selling stock or raising debt based on your reserves. And that's how we primarily focused in, in raised mm-hmm. capital. Today with ESG, where where boards are being told, don't reinvest capital. What is ESG? Uh, Can you I'm sorry? define ESG? Environmental Sustainability and Governance. All right. And, and those are the three things that are, that are uh, you know, all the public companies are being having to look at the boards. And you're going to see more and more lawsuits about companies not, you know, adhering to those three things in the, the green movement. So today, um, there are some of the largest uh, funds uh, State Street, uh, Fidelity, uh, BlackRock uh, um, um, are saying, you know, they're telling their shareholders to vote against boards that reinvest capital in energy. I saw today where the treasurer for the city of Chicago is recommending selling all their energy stocks in the, the Ch- Chicago portfolio. When you have stuff like that going on, it's very difficult to raise money in the public markets. And so we're really back to that private investor uh, who, is, who is willing to take a risk. Uh, there's less risk today in, in the drilling and completion side, but there's certainly the, the commodity risk of volatility going up and down. But that's where we are. A lot of our capital is coming from cash flow, of existing production, and, and raising money from basically high net worth individuals and private family offices who don't want to tie their money up into private equity funds and things like that, that today are, you know, and they can move money around rather, rather quickly and, and are very interested in, in that type of an investment. And it is, there still is a tax advantage of making an oil and gas investment where you can write off your investment in the first year. So that's kind of the evolution of what we've gone through 
And, I have a uh, question for you. In the 80s, was Reagan's push for tax cuts, was that what caused our energy crisis? Well, what, what caused that, what, the oil bust? In the, the, what you had was you had the price of oil in the 70s went from $5 a barrel to $40 a barrel. Price of natural gas went from a dollar in MCF to, to $9 in MCF in the late 70s. And it caused just a huge drilling boom. We were running over 4,000 drilling rigs in America. And so that, that, that huge amount of investment, that huge amount of drilling created an oversupply. Okay. And the oversupply began to show up in like 1982, 83. And so you had a, a, a commodity price collapse and a- Just like oh, during the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you had a, uh, um, uh, tax rate collapse also. So a lot of the money was tax driven. So they were getting less and they were they, they said, I don't want to invest my money in something that that uh, I'm going to lose money in just to get, you know, lower my taxes. I'd really just pay taxes. Right. So it's, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that happen over, you know, administrations and, and uh, you know, the supply and demand is is really the one thing that that materially affects oil and gas investments. If we're oversupplied, the price collapses and people stop investing. And then that starts the next cycle. Mark, it seems like, you know, again, I don't want to be too political, but you guys must really get nervous when there are elections <laughs> because this should just be a business. You know, you should be at the table with NATO telling them what you can do. We're, we're, or with the tax advisors and all these people, that you know, they're not asking the key industries how do our decisions directly impact today's world. It's very curious how fossil fuels are under such attack. And as he mentioned, being forced companies to divest of their stocks that have anything to do with fossil fuels. But and, and the same people that are telling us this and, and need to move into complete renewable resources are the same people that still have one, two, or three gas-operated automobiles. And that's going to be for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. Americans love their automobiles. There's no doubt about it, the gas-driven automobiles. One of my neighbors, though, said if we had three Teslas in the neighborhood, he gave some statistic about that the electric grid couldn't support more than three people in this little area here charging their vehicles because it draws so much electricity. So it's like a trade-off. And that's just a sideshow. We don't need to get into that, but you can't just move from one source of energy to another overnight, or even, well, it sounds like in 40 to 50 years, you can't totally cut off the need for these um, energy sources. Good ideas, but wouldn't it make a lot more sense if you were going to force the public to go um, more into renewables, that you build a corridor up I-49 with an electric monorail and you ride up there to Shreveport and then you go down I-20 to Dallas on an electric monorail. Think how many people you could move so efficiently and not have all the, the electric, the EV cars on the road. I mean, there's ways to beat the problem without forcing it on us. And, um, it would be interesting to see some more ideas like that. But mm -hmm. get, getting back to Charlie's point, so ESG, and yesterday I learned, and C, which is cyber. Yeah. If you don't have the ESG component and the cyber component to protect your companies, you're not going to get investments and recommendations from Wall Street. So as we mature as an industry, we have to be aware of that and encompass all those things. I'm sure Charlie's dealing with that currently. but. We, we feel like we do a great job in what we do, Jan. We provide America with the opportunity to drive to work and recreate uh, responsibly. And we feel like as an industry, we've been punished. And Scott's trying to bring a coalition together, Scott on jail, to offset that and recognize that oil and gas workers are so important in this country. And yes, we will get to these other technologies, and we embrace that. But it's not going to happen today or tomorrow, and maybe 40 years, maybe 30 years. But we just hired a young petroleum land management intern in my office, and she said, in my lifetime at age 20, I expect to be in oil and gas. I mean, they won't embrace solar and wind and other things, but they really believe oil and gas is their future. Yeah. I think, too, the... Uh, the probably the next generation hydrogen is probably the most efficient. It's like 90% usable and it doesn't pollute. And uh, there's blue hydrogen, there's green hydrogen and things, which is monikers that whether it's coming out of the ground or you generate it. But 
you know, a lot of the, the, the wind and, you know, unfortunately solar and hydro are temporary fixes. You know, we've got to move from a, uh, you know, to, from a uh, hydrocarbon to a renewable that you can still manufacture with. And, you know, it's going to take, you know, I think Jamie Diamond, uh, uh, head of uh, J.P. Morgan, said we need a Marshall Plan to, to go after it. And that's probably, and it's all being affected by what's going on in Europe right now. Maybe you have a wake-up call. And uh, we, you know, we had that back, you know, 20 years ago when you started all the, the shale revolution. We were importing more and more and more. Today we're, you know, very sustainable. But what we really need to look at is what is that next energy source that, that our grandkids will be able to use, mm -hmm. you know, as efficiently, effectively as what we have today? Right. What, what types of things does, can hydrogen fuel? Like, how, how would you use hydrogen? Well, I mean, it's, I uh, it's, it, would, it will be an energy source that will be usable. F yeah, you know, it's, it's certainly a replacement for natural gas. Okay. Uh, and, and I, you know, I'm not a, uh, uh, expert, but, but I do know that when you look at a, a, a hydrocarbon molecule, it's about 20% effective. In other words, about 20% of you burn it, you know, 80% is, 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 you know, like water and things like that. Whereas with hydrogen, it's like 80 or 90%. So it's the most efficient fuel out there. Um, and unfortunately, nuclear is, you know, if we can actually have people that sand our water in a submarine for, you know, two months and not get radiated, we certainly should be able to build a nuclear power plant somewhere that doesn't affect people. But again, what we've got to watch out for is there's one more. Y'all said ESG and cyber P, politics. Politics is basically the one that is probably more important because it comes and goes every four years. And, and mm -hmm. we don't, we have no idea whether we're going to have a, a conservative or a liberal administration or someone that is liberal, that is pro oil and gas or, or energy, or, you know, you've had, you've even had, uh, uh, you know, conservatives that were, that were behind the scenes against it. So, you know, we're, we have to be careful that we don't stick our neck out and get our head chopped off. And that's, you know, that, that affects all these businesses and your long-term investment. That's the only way that we can continue to be sustainable is long-term investments that make sense. So that period of time is the same period of time as a political term. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so four ironic. years comes and goes very quick. It does. Yeah. And it, the older you get, it comes a lot faster. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you think the high prices are going to last? You know, is this another crystal ball question? The high prices of right now are going to last. It's a wave. It's as soon as the the supply and demand changes, then the prices will go down. And it's certainly the the uh, what's going on in Ukraine is causing this to happen, as well as some political decisions here at home. But yes, it will go back yeah. down. And and I think Charlie would agree. I, I know my relatives in North and South Carolina. They call up and they're complaining every day. It's not good for the United States to have extremely high prices. We always felt like in the $80, $85 a barrel range, we could make good money and still serve the public well. I don't know if Charlie agrees with that, but that uh, seems reasonable to yeah. me. So. Well, too, also you need to look at it on a relative basis, you know, what people are making today and what they're paying for a, a gallon of gas and what, what their car consumes. You know, in the last, you know, in 1980, we were getting 10 miles a gallon. Today, we're probably, you know, most of the cars are much smaller today on the road, and they're getting somewhere between 25 and 30 miles a gallon. And so it's it's not nearly as impactful at, say, 4 or $5 as it would have been in 1980 if the price would have, you know, because you were getting, uh, and um, so, you know, I think that, that while we're seeing higher prices, but to answer your question, will they go down? If we have a, if, 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 Ukraine actually, you know, wins or survives, and Putin is put out of, you know, power, uh, and you basically Europe decides to buy their their, you know, you know, LNG from the United States. You know, you're going to see a, a drilling wave in the United States, and uh, this is this is no different than the pacifism that happened before World War II when Hitler took over. You know, if you let Putin out of this one, mm -hmm. he's not going to stop. No. And China will do the same thing. So, I mean, it's today we know a lot more about 
politics on a, on a, on a real-time basis because news and, and, and what we can see and what we can read, but high prices are uh, as a result of need. They're not as a result of someone, you know, flipping a switch and saying, I'm going to charge you more. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's a commodity, and it's based on a worldwide need. It's just unfortunate, like it's not just filling your car up. It's flying somewhere. I heard the airlines, it's costing fifty to 60000 more per flight to right. fill up. It's the cost of transporting groceries and, you know, transportation, the Uber drivers, the, the people that, when I'm filled up at Costco, I drive to Costco because it's like 40 cents cheaper a gallon. <laughs> but I met a plumber there and I, he said, I've got three trucks and he drives to Costco because he's like, we're on the road all day. So it's just, it affects his services, his rates. Everybody's being affected much more than just the cost of filling up the tank. I mean, you guys are critical, I think, for our national security and quality of life. And certainly it increases inflation. That is, oh. these costs is what makes mm -hmm. it go up. I mean, that is, it, and we would like to see it slow down and reverse. I mean, you know, you look at what the pandemic did. I mean, there a lot of politics involved in that also. I mean, that's a whole other topic. But, you know, shutting down a country and a world, you know, and, and you know, the supply chains and everything that we're dealing with, I'm really shocked and surprised that things aren't more out of control than they are. I mean, we certainly, well, on the Federal Reserve Board I am, I kind of watch the, you know, they basically just kept dropping rates and dropping rates and dropping rates. And, you know, now we're going to have to try and go the other direction. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, it, these are cycles. And, you know, this, this whole thing in Ukraine has, has, has kind of changed that, that cycle. But the one thing long term I think it's going to do is, is wake people up mm -hmm. that we do need hydrocarbons. Right. We need them for, so fine. It's, you know, and my description uh, is if you're running a relay race and you're, you're now all of a sudden you're, you know, you're almost to the finish line, you got the last, last leg of the race and you're the, the last baton person sitting there waiting to get the baton and the one before throws it at them. You know, that's what we're doing right. We're throwing the baton. We're not handing it off. We need to hand off from hydrocarbons to renewables. But do it over a reasonable period of time, you know, decades, not days or weeks or months. Right. Well, I had a couple other questions I wanted y'all to address. Um, it seems like it must have been over a week ago, the Biden administration was saying that there are 9,000 permits that are out there. Why can't the oil and gas companies use them? And uh, also, I'd like y'all to clarify, where are you able to drill or... or um, operate on federal lands and waters. Like, I don't really understand where we are with coming from the Trump administration to the Biden. And I should know this, but it seems like things have been changing the last few weeks, what the Biden administration will approve. Well, if I'll, yeah, I mean, having 9,000 permits. Those are the ones that have yeah, been. It's like having 9,000 cans of beans in your, in your, your cupboard. You can't use them all at one time or you better not. And, and so these companies basically have to drill, uh, you know, at a, you know, drill one well that sets up the next well, which sets up the next. So just saying that they have permits is just one piece of the equation. They've got to have the capital, they've got to have the cash flow, and, and it doesn't happen overnight. Most companies are hedged, so they probably sold a lot of their oil and gas production, probably 50% of it, at a much lower price. And so maybe 50% is based on these new prices. So a permit is just like one rung of a ladder. It's not, it, it's not, it's, it, it's not the be all, the end all. And so again, that's just another political comment that they're trying to defend the fact that they've, they've shut us down in many ways, permit, other permits that you can't get. You can't get a pipeline permit. You can't get, they've got the clean air permits and things like that, all that are necessary to drill along with a permit to physically move a rig in and, and drill it on that road permits on in, you know, going through national parks and things like that, or, you know, national lands, they are saying one thing and they're doing something else. They're not, they're not approving all the necessary permits to, mm -hmm. to drill and complete and produce. What an expensive, and, complicated business. Yeah, and one of the best um, examples of that is we just recently had a federal offshore lease sale, mm -hmm. and all those leases have been put in suspense be, by the Biden administration because they didn't think enough care was given to 
the uh, the ultimate use for some of these leases, such as Exxon and Chevron bought leases for carbon sequestration. And now the Biden administration's going, well, we haven't had time to study that, therefore you can't bring those leases to fruition and use them as you would like to. And so, as Charlie says, when you flip around like that, I mean, here's a, and this is for a good intent, this is mm -hmm. to reduce the carbon footprint in the atmosphere and store it according to 45Q, which is a federal mandate that we're all trying to follow. But yet you have a, a roadblock going up that basically says you can't do that. So it, it is frustrating. And we would like a clear path. If we have a rule book that we can follow, we're pretty darn good at it. And oil and gas, I, I'm proud of what we do. We, it, it's a great industry. And we have tried hard to do the right thing. We don't always do it, but most of the time we do. So that's very frustrating. I read that predictions are that there'll be a rise in production by the end of this year, uh, just over a million dollars extra per day. And I know you have a chart, Charlie, about the number of rigs that are out there, but does that sound about right? Uh, you know, it, does those, that make a those difference? are, you know, basically that, that's based on rig activity and, and, you know, that's just one one component. It's the type of wells you're drilling, you know, are they oil wells or gas wells, uh, and how efficient they are and effect they are. But we certainly have, with the, the you've seen since the collapse during the pandemic, you've doubled the rig utilization in America since that period of time, over the last year. So, yeah, it's, and those rigs that were started a year ago are the ones that now are bringing on production. And so, that's a pretty good forecast that that based on what happened a year ago this happened you know that the wells are coming on now that will produce you're going to see if you just keep the current rig utilization we'll probably be up about a million barrels that's a, and i'm i'm making that assumption because of what you said that's the number they're they're forecasting I'm sure everything I'm saying is no, it's, what I, I read it. somewhere. Right. I don't know but what the source it'll was. It'll ease the prices <laughs> yeah. potentially. Yes. Yeah. What what but people don't understand though is it wasn't Fox News. A, it was a cyber like attack, Wall Street Journal or something. A cyber attack or some, you know, uh, uh, you know, something in a far part of the world that, that you know the the the, the war between uh, Yemen and, and Saudi Arabia where they're launching rockets into Saudi Arabia. If they hit the right spot over there, you know, you could knock a million barrels or two million barrels offline overnight. There was a, actually, there was a storm on the Black Sea earlier this week that knocked out a million barrels of oil and gas production, Russian oil and gas production. And it's gonna take 45 days to bring it back on. It hadn't been, no one's setting about that, that because yeah. they are, uh, they're, they're all saying, we're not buying more Russian oil. Well, that's not right. Uh, you know, it's your your. It's a commodity. It's a worldwide fluid uh, a commodity, and so it's going to go somewhere. If it doesn't go to the, you know, countries in NATO, it'll go to you know, basically it'll go to some go to India or some other wealth. It's a you, you can't just stick it in a. You can't keep sticking barrels. It's gonna it's gonna get out there. And we talk about the countries selling and buying, but it's really individuals. Yeah. That are making this move, making it happen. Yeah. Most of us don't know much about this. I have to tell you, I looked up the other day, how do you make gasoline? Yeah. You know, I was thinking I, I used to deal with this, but I don't know the production process. It, it's a lot easier to get a gallon of milk and, <laughs> and gasoline and milk are about the same price. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you look at where it comes from, it, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I remember back in, I guess it was probably about 19... 90, uh, one of my daughters was a second grader at Fatima. And so we had to do dad go to class and tell them what you do. Oh, how did you do that? So I basically, <laughs> my topic was I sell dreams. And so that was, I described that, you know, uh, I laid awake at night and thought about where to drill an oil and gas well. That was a dream. And then I had to go out mm -hmm. and raise the capital to do it. And, and you know, I, I tried to put it down to a really simple you know, you know, process, and they understood it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the, the at that time, the uh, the headmaster at, at Fatima, I said, well, what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna take y'all all on a school bus out to Onsla Butte, which is, you know, next parish over and show you an oil and gas production. Well, he wouldn't let me do that. Oh. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> which is how I grew up, you know, going on, you know, going on well sites and things like that. I think a lot of people have lost the, 
you know, they even though they live around it, they don't really think about it very much around here, even so that it's a so much a part of our economy. We never do think about it until it hits us what it costs. Honestly, it, we don't think about it. We've been weak in educating the public on how oil and gas comes out of the ground. And I, I know that in the past few years, some of the best field trips that we had to connect with politicians from D.C. would be to invite congressmen and senators from states that are non-oil and gas producing states, mm -hmm. some from oil and gas producing states, out to a working rig or offshore mm -hmm. to a platform and let them see for themselves how it how it works all the integral parts how many people it takes the supply chain as you mentioned when they did that they went back with a much better understanding mm -hmm. of what it takes to do what we do and and frankly yeah. embraced it a lot more in leadership louisiana you know we went down to port fouchon and saw you know first of all the crumbling roads but the energy corridor for the u.s it's it's just, yeah. I get goosebumps thinking about it, but it's so fragile. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that uh, a member of CCA, you know, Coastal mm -hmm. Conservation mm -hmm. Association, and, you know, the, the people that are complaining the most about the, the lack of activity offshore are the fishermen, because if we've taken out over 75% of the platforms that, that, were, that were in place out there. Yeah. And uh, rigs to reefs is, is good. That, yeah. But... But you now, it, if you drive out of uh, South, you know, Southwest Pass, out of, you know, uh, or out of Cocodri or out of Lake Charles, there's no longer any drilling rigs that you can see or no longer any producing platforms you can go fish next to. And those were, those were economic and, and sustainable places for fish to, to use. And, and uh, uh, one of the, the the, the most interesting things is there never was a lobster season in, in Louisiana until they built offshore platforms. And they, the lobsters would live in the, on these platforms. Uh, and they literally had wow. that PVC pipes. You go and take the lobster out of the oh thing. Oh, my gosh. And it's there, there's actually a lobster season in Louisiana now, uh, or offshore lobsters, mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, it's, it's a very unique and a very small business. But the lobsters would be born in the, uh, uh, what is it, the... the Gulf Stream, mm -hmm. and the eggs would hatch, and they they drop into Louisiana, and they basically wouldn't live because of the, the soft bottom and everything. But then they started actually living when they had a platform they could they could hang around on. It's like you know, it's really interesting. Fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think a lot of people don't realize too how clean our energy is in the United States compared to production in other countries, but also the um, endeavors that oil and gas principles take to make sure that they're good citizens, right. that they give back. I forgot about the Rigs to Reef program. Is that no longer in effect? Well, it's, 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 it's still in effect? We utilize it. It's, um, you, you, know, you got to get permits to do mm -hmm. it, and you got to you got to clean the platform up before you can actually take it out there. So it, mm -hmm. all you're really doing is taking scrap iron uh, and, and dropping it you know, into an area that, that won't affect shrimping and, mm -hmm. you know, and navigation and things like that. But the uh, fish like it. They the like fish it. love it. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, so it, they, the they need structure. Uh -huh. If I may, you mentioned giving back to the community, and certainly. For us, Don Briggs has been that guy. You mentioned Louisiana and Gas Association. Charlie and I have been there for many years since it began. But Don recognized early on when the hurricanes would come through or any type of uh, need, we would get together financially and try to put some money back in the communities where Murphy at the time had a, a refinery or wherever we were operating to give back to the community. And uh, Don did a good job of yeah. doing that. We've tried really hard to continue doing that. And it's interesting, we're, uh, we're funding a book right now. Uh, Bill Finstermaker and Brian Hanks are primarily, but uh, the rest of us have kind of stepped up too. And uh, we're being interviewed uh, for a book that's being written, written on Don Briggs, which will come oh, out uh, probably in the next uh, six months to nine months. And uh, Don is, is basically the heart and soul of, of the oil and gas industry when it comes to you know, getting along with whether it's the pop political, you know, Baton Rouge uh, is is a place that it can be friendly or it can be adversarial uh, to our industry. And Don was just the the uh, consummate perfect person, mm -hmm. right place, right time to lead uh, Lioga, and which turned into Loga, uh, which I was service chairman for three years on. 
And it's just amazing the impact that Don had. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that uh, uh, Mark brought it up because he is he is so instrumental of of kind of paving the way uh, for us to be able to continue drilling and Mm -hmm. and producing and developing South Louisiana and North Louisiana now. He's a good man. Yeah, Charlie. On that note, we were talking as we're winding down. I wanted y'all just to talk about you know whatever we haven't discussed, and I wanted to get in. I learned through my neighbor, Jim Gossin, about some of the work that you and other people have been involved in when we do have natural disasters after a hurricane, let's say. If you can just kind of briefly touch on that, because it's not to toot your own horn, but to show what the oil and gas industry and others do to help our own. Well, uh, kind of my first uh, involvement was in when Katrina hit, uh, um, New Orleans was, was, you know, ground zero for everybody throwing as much money as they could to try to help people. But Bogalusa, which was, you know, off the beaten path, also had basically gotten knocked out. And so we basically got together and, and shipped uh, K-cylinders, oxygen cylinders to the hospitals and the uh, uh, nursing homes and all, which they, they weren't getting any. They were, people were dying up there. Uh, ice, we, you know, once you lose electricity, refrigeration and things like that are, there are acute problems, you, you need it immediately. We uh, got a, an 18 wheeler and went to Delcom and blew in hundreds of thousands of pounds of, or 50,000 pounds of ice and just drove it up there and distributed it and uh, took, you know, all types of goods and services. And the one reason it, it, it kind of works is, is uh, when you have a, a, an event like that, and we did the same thing for the recent hurricane that mm-hmm. hit Southeast Louisiana and took it to Homa and, and distributed, is the fact that we are around industrial operations, trucking and shipping and, and boats and, and big items, and, and we're used to dealing with it. So to pick up the phone and call someone who has an 18-wheeler or, uh, you know, industrial-type things, we're used to doing it when you're drilling, drilling a, a well to 20,000 feet underground. A lot of operations are going on, so it's something that we're kind of used to. Uh, now, you know, it's uh, handing out, you know, gloves and, and you know, and, and sweaters and things like that. That's not pretty part of my, my agenda, but, but handing out, you know, doing things on a commercial scale uh, you know, and it's kind of like the Cajun Navy, yeah. you know, you put, put a bunch of Cajuns with a bunch of bass boats and they can, <laughs> they can pretty much do anything. Uh, so I think it's a, it's kind of our way of life down here. We know we've all been impacted by hurricanes or storms or things like that. And we know how bad it gets so fast. And so we said, we can't just ignore it. You know, you can be sitting in, in Lafayette and be fine and Lake Charles is miserable. I can't sit there and know that it's 70 miles away. People are in misery without doing something. Right, right. Yeah, and, and Kathleen Blanco did reach out to Charlie yeah. and myself and yeah. took a group down uh, to get people by boats because yeah. she knew she could call upon oil and gas. Yeah. We were willing to roll up mm-hmm. our sleeves. And as you said, we understand logistics pretty well. So it was a trying time, but we're glad yeah. to help. Yeah, I think, I think uh, certainly it... Uh, in South Louisiana or in, or in Louisiana, you know, we can quickly get above politics, you know, uh, you know, whether you're Democrat or Republican. I think when people are in harm's way or when they are uh, uh, have been harmed and uh, I think people quickly ignore, you know, some of their 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 petty differences uh, or big political differences. And, uh, you know, and so I think that's when. You know, we really shine very well, and, and certainly in South Louisiana, when, when there's a need, people arise to the occasion. They sure do. And I also want to get in, I, I think I met both of you through our church, Asbury. Right. I mean, I think that's a great common connection. It's a great blessing. Yeah. And I'm happy to see you guys there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the 830 service yeah. person, I'm, you know. Charlie are at 945. <laughs> yeah. We're a little behind you. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. then I get my whole day, you yeah. know, but um, it's well, a great it's, church. Uh, it's a great community church. Really so, is. Yeah. Is, is there anything that I didn't, like, I just didn't bring up that you thought I would? Any important points that I totally I, missed? I, I just, I want to emphasize that I believe that we need to educate the public, even our own public here and our own politicians, about how important it is what we do, not just as an industry, but as a continuity for our country and the people that live here, providing inexpensive good energy 
helps override poverty issues. Allowing people to have access to energy helps people get out of poverty. We don't mention that enough, and that, that's one last comment I wanted yeah. to make. So. I think, too, the, the people, again, we, we talk mostly about upstream oil and gas, the drilling and completion side, but there's also the transportation side. We're, we're gifted with, a, in South Louisiana, a huge amount of pipelines that, that we are regulated on, and we try to keep them as, as, you know, as in good shape as possible. And then the refineries in the petrochemical industry, even though there's not as much drilling going on in South Louisiana as there was in Shelf the Gulf of Mexico, we have rebuilt that pet chem business, refinery business, LNG business, and it's gonna be here for many decades. So there will be a, even though you won't see as many drilling rigs around, you're going to see, you know, a, a huge uh, uh, downstream business that's, uh, you know, that's very, very important to this to this industry and right. to this area. Right. And uh, so I think that's something that, that, you know, is certainly worth mentioning. Well, Mark Miller, Charlie Goodson, I want to thank you for your time today. It's a beautiful Friday. Um, we're blessed here in South Louisiana. Thank you for joining us. And I'd like to thank our sponsors as we close out. Very grateful for the support of Oxner, Lafayette General, Home Bank, Facet Group, and of course, Raider and Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape and makes it sound professional. Thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed, you can get this wherever you get your podcast. Just hit your little button on your phone and you can subscribe to Discover Lafayette or check out this interview and over 250 other interviews at discoverlafayette.net. I'm Jan Swift. Thank you for joining us.